All right, everybody, welcome back. This will be podcast number four of the Recovery Lab podcast series. My name is Drew Hassan. Uh, I'm a local person in recovery in Jackson. And uh, we have started this podcast in an effort to promote all things of or related to recovery. Um, I've got my brief spiel that I've been given before each one. I will pare it down as much as I can. I please invite everybody to comment a lot, to give me some constructive criticism, suggested topics, nominate somebody to be on the podcast. Uh, the more y'all are interactive and uh, you know, in exchange, uh, the better the podcast will be. Um, if anybody wants to help me out, I'm still looking for a thing called a mixer to plug in the microphones. If anybody knows where one is or wants to donate one, I will certainly use it. Okay, nobody tunes in to listen to me ramble on. So without further ado, I am super excited to welcome Keenan Wald to the podcast today. He is the director of the Pines and Katie Hill uh, Treatment Center in Columbus. So without further ado, Keenan, welcome. Thank you very much, sir. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Good, good. Well, I don't know that anybody would realize this, um, and I guess you won't say it for whatever HIPAA reason. So I went to the Pines. It's, it plays a, a chapter or two in my recovery story, and I often think to myself, uh, how, I wonder how much misery I could have saved my life had I not left the Pines in the middle of the night doing the stupid things that we often do. Uh, but anyway, uh, I liked the Pines. I always liked and enjoyed listening to Keenan speak. And Keenan spoke at the Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program. And I was so taken with what he had to say, I thought, you know, I would be remiss not to have an opportunity to share that with everybody. So I've already given Keenan a little bit of a heads up about the things I want to talk about. But Keenan, how are you doing this morning? How's life in Columbus? Oh, it's, it's good. It's a rainy day. And so. I, I will probably end up being stuck inside all day, but no, it's, um, things are going really well. Well, then I feel less bad about consuming your Saturday morning doing this. Oh, yeah. No, no worries at all. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, look, what are, I'm going to try to throw you a few softball questions because really I just want to listen to you talk because you really are an engaging speaker. Uh, what are some of the, the, how can how can Keenan this morning help somebody get sober? What's what's one or two things you would want somebody to know? Oh man, that is a uh, that's a heavy question. You know, I I feel like there are people in my personal life um, that would want me to be able to answer that definitively. And and you know, when you deal with addiction, uh, we 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 frequently want answers or solutions that are foolproof or, um, you know, definitive. Yeah. We certainly and, seek those absolutes. Yeah. Oh man. And, and one of the things that I've learned from my experience, um, both my, my personal experience in recovery, but also in my experience of treating uh, addiction is that you just, you cannot, it, it's very difficult to have absolutes in every situation. And so I think uh, I think right now the message I would have for people is that recovery is about continued attempts uh, and whatever that means, continued attempts. 
you know, we, we, there was such a goal of abstinence for so long and, and somebody can do really well with abstinence for a period of time and then they struggle and that, that struggle can be such a blow. It can be such a, a lightning strike that maybe they have difficulty getting back engaged into what they were doing in recovery. And so I think the real message is just, you know, recovery is continuing to try or continuing attempts to do whatever might be in front of you to, to have, um, make different decisions, to not use, to not drink, um, you know, that, that we don't necessarily have to put everything up to success or failure. You know, that's really interesting that you said that because this dovetails nicely into there was one thing that I remembered that you, well, I remembered a, a number of things, but one thing in particular that you said when I last uh, saw you speak, you were retelling a tale of, I believe, some fella who had, you know, did what I did, you know, left in the middle of the night from the pines, relapses pretty, you know, pretty immediately, uh, and then comes back, and you said, you know, that should count as a victory. And I remember it challenged my kind of binary thoughts on recovery, you know, it is, you either are, uh, sober or you are not. And to be not sober is a loss. And you were say you were, you know, championing this guy and you're like, this is a victory. Somebody relapsed yeah. and they came back and they came back, not dead. Yeah. And they didn't OD and they used the tools that were available to them. I mean, that, I think that's really something now, I know there's somebody out there that's thinking, well, hell, Drew and Keenan said that, you know, if I relapse, it's not that bad. It is that bad. It is bad. And we should certainly shoot for uh, continued sobriety. But, yeah, uh, slips happen. And I'm sure you see that more in your life than I do in mine. Yeah, and I also think that there is a certain – you cannot get away from a sense of morality when we talk about addiction. And it's such a complex uh, condition that, you know, there are people, and I agree, there are people be like, well, um, you know, you're just kind of giving permission. In, if, you know, if you just, you know, when I first got to the Pines and Katie Hill, um, we had a rule, and, and this wasn't my rule, it was a, a, a rule in general of our program that, that uh, if, you know, once you left treatment, you couldn't come back for a year. And I remember, and I didn't know that. I just came in and somebody was reaching back out and somebody said, well, we don't let people come back for a year. And I thought, that is just, you know, baloney. We, you know, if someone's asking for help, you know, we get them in. We try and help them if we can. And, well, you know, you know I, that. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead. But Well, I, I was just recounting to a loved one this morning about uh you know malcolm gladwell has that book the tipping point and uh you know you never know which relapse is the last right. one and you never know what is that kind word what is that supportive thing what is that last you know trip to the dope boy you know you you have to give hope to that yeah. newly uh, recovered person and treat them as if, you know, this, this tenth conversation with them about, you know, admitting you're powerless or this tenth conversation about how, you know, your behavior brought on these consequences might be the one that, that sticks with them. 
Well, and statistically, look, addiction treatment is is. I, I guess I, I want to be careful of what I say, but you know, if we measure successful recovery based on continued abstinence from the point of treatment, uh, treatment is really not a very successful venture. Well, if you know, if, if, if measured, measured by that metric, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yep. And, and so, and most people, you know, in the in the rooms in the twelve step rooms. You know, there's a there, there's almost this. Uh, you know, a common phrase is, you know, uh, relapse doesn't have to be a part of your story, um, and, and that is true. It doesn't have to be a part of everybody's experience, but you know, it is very very frequent. You know, it, it's it is something that is very much a reality, and and we've kind of gotten to a point where. There are times when I'm afraid where, where it's almost like there's hesitancy to talk about relapse because it'll push people towards relapse. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a therapist, and so one of the fears of talking about suicide with somebody, one of the unfounded fears is that somehow talking about suicide is going to put somebody in a situation to thus think about suicide and potentially be at risk. And the opposite is true. If we can get people to talk about suicidal thoughts or suicide, you know, suicidality, we can see a decrease in that. And it's the same for relapse. You know, let's talk about the reality of it um, because we can decrease it if we put it out in the open. Look, I completely agree. I completely agree. One of the motivating, one of the motivations for my doing this podcast is the hopes that somebody can uh, listen to it and benefit from my and the guest's being real honest about the consequences they had, the shortcomings they have, the struggles they may have, even in continued sobriety, in the hopes that by, by laying bare those things, they can think, hell, you know, I, I'm kind of the same way. I'm glad Drew struggles, yeah. even though he's been sober for yeah. five years now. I'm glad Drew has a temper. I mean, you know, we, we, we tend to want to put on this fake front like the things don't bother us. When, you know, I don't know how many times somebody's asked for, does anybody have something they want to talk about at the meeting? And I sit there quiet, knowing full well I should talk about my temper tantrum that I had earlier that day. Or I should talk <laughs> about how, you know, I want to kick the cat and the dog and all that. Well, and that right there is the, that's more, that's more about recovery than not walking into a bar. Yeah, you know, I get it's that. the day it's the day in, the day out, the trying to you know, there's this framework of my mind that was, you know, from birth on has created a human me that is prone to certain things. And for some reason a lot of that turns into addiction if I I don't even know I you know, I am prone to that. You know, when I when I mess up or when something happens or I feel whatever I feel, you know, one of the things I have to be aware of is that I could be prone to addictive behaviors, uh, including substance use. And so that's the framework of my mind. I can do a lot of therapy. I can do a lot of reflection. I can meditate. I can pray. I can do all this stuff. But by my default nature, I'm just sort of prone to that. And I say that with no judgment like that. That's my reality. That's how I perceive me. And so when my, my when my grounding is rocky, um, it's important for me to keep 
recovery people around me, whatever that means, because I'm just prone to that. And I, you know, I was 23 um, when I went to a treatment center, and I've, I've spent the majority of my adult life in recovery. I, I've dealt with alcoholism and addiction in recovery more than I have in active. And it's funny that it's like I see it more in my life now than I did when I was drinking and using. Those, the, you know. the, those cluster of behaviors that don't serve us, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, and and sometimes they do serve us. You know, I can obsess better than <laughs> I'm really good at obsessing about things. I'm really good at losing interest in things after obsessing about them. You know, I'm very it's, I I can take this very all or nothing sort of um, thing, and 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 I'm not an expert on brain chemistry and stuff like that, but I, I'm fascinated by it. And dopamine is is our reward chemical and, and you know, reward becomes motivation. And it's no surprise and addiction is essentially built upon the foundation of spiking dopamine. And so it's no surprise to me that behaviors that are related to dopamine I still uh, you know, are still very prevalent in my life. Yeah, the gambling, the food, the yeah, those, those are, yeah, I can get that. I can get that. Well, and my, my wife jokes with me because I go after hobbies. You know, and somebody once in really early in my recovery, somebody said, um, alcoholics don't have hobbies, we have obsessions. And, you know, I'm walking around in, in a spare room in our house that has become like a storage unit of my lost hobbies. I have a coffee roaster over here. I have a 3D printer. I have, you know, a set of golf clubs. You know, it's like... I, it's like the graveyard of these hobbies or obsessions that I was all about and researched and read about obsessively and got the equipment, and then I did it for about a month, you know? Right. Look, I, I don't know anybody that couldn't that couldn't relate to that. <laughs> what do you think it is about the the brain that makes us so susceptible to such things? Uh, I... I uh, Flatly, I don't know, but I, I, I've read and I've heard and I've kind of researched some things, and, and what I know is that, you know, drugs act on brains in similar ways, and, it, and when we take a drug, it's going to mess with the chemicals that we already have, and there are, you know, a broad array of people in the world and there's some people that just don't get, you know, if, if they get high, they're going to get high too, but they may not get the same level of reward that for some reason I got. And that reward certainly is, hey, I'm having fun, this is a good time, things are good. But in addiction, it evolves into this sense of comfort and sense of belonging. And um, for me, that's what it was. And, and I see that with a, a lot of people that are dealing with addiction. It ties into this very, like, sense of who we are more so than people who may get high and may not have that same sense. They just have a good time. Provides some sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the synergistic effect of both hitting those dopamine receptors that we won't hit and also making us feel loved, welcomed, uh, acknowledged, a part of. Yeah, 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 and, and and everybody has these key words that work for them, and, and 
I can relate to most of it. You know, it's funny that, you know, in treatment, you know, we may be treating somebody who is, and there's no, let me say this, going back to my original statement of, I don't think there's any absolutes. There are some people that only do cocaine, some people that only do heroin, but for the most part, we, we sort of fluctuate through our lives or, you know, man, I used to be really into drinking, but now I'm just smoking weed every day. It's, it's, you know, that's variance. But there are certain things that people that primarily use opioids or heroin uh, or fentanyl nowadays that they may be able to jive with one another. And there's certain things about alcohol or alcohol, people that struggle with alcohol that they may jive together. But on top of that, there is also a lot of things that those two substances folks that use those two substances can relate with. And that's where we start talking about the emotional stuff, the sense of belonging, the, the you know, identification of who I am. It, and it's strange to me that somebody who primarily does, you know, methamphetamine or a stimulant and somebody that does a depressant, that they can relate together so well because the substances are doing dramatically different things to their mind and body. Look, I totally get that. I totally get that. And I think when we get down to it, and, and and are willing to look at it, you know, we're all, there may be uh, varying motivations that, that led to our usage. You know, you could have childhood trauma, you could have abuse, you could have, you know, some adult trauma, um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of pushing you towards um, inebriation and and disconnect from those feelings, but the things that tend to keep us there, you know, once we've gotten to where we're using, the things that keep us to where we continue using, the overlap is the same. I mean, in that in that Venn diagram, you know, it's all about that escapism, and yeah, and that drive is is something that you know, meth head or a you know, Delauded junkie can can certainly grab hold of. Look, one. Yeah, I think. No, I, go ahead. I, I think, and just to, to kind of piggyback on what you said, I I think in general addiction starts out as pleasure seeking, and it ends with pain avoidance. That yes. that is your typical path for, for with addiction and alcoholism: pleasure seeking, pain avoidance. But I remember the first time I ever felt uh, opiate withdrawal was dope sick. And I thought I had the flu, and uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And then I thought, this is this is awful. Like I've gotten myself in a, I wasn't planning to have this kind of problem. I just wanted yeah. to escape. And then it becomes doing that which is necessary, not to feel the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, that that uh, yeah it. it that's one of the things about opioids, uh, and, and there's no substance that's more difficult. There's more, no substance that is harder to recover from. You know, I really do believe that. But there's certain things about each one that make it particularly unique and challenging. And one of the things about opioids is the high tolerance rate coupled with the long-lasting and very uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're just we're, we're just melding right into my little outline here. So, speaking of yeah. withdrawal symptoms, I'll throw you a softball. Why 
should we in the recovery community tolerate the widespread use of Suboxone when we see in the recovery community and abuse didn't exactly take off? Is the use of Suboxone or Methadone a crutch? Do you support it? Why or why not? You know, when I was, uh, I, I lived in upstate New York for five years. I'm originally from Montana and uh, uh, initially got into recovery in Montana and, and then moved. Wanted to just go where the wind took me and I ended up in upstate New York. And You had that wanderlust. To, uh, that's right. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, I got in my car, I drove across the country, and I listened to Tom Petty the whole way. Uh, the sun was behind uh, you everywhere you drove, wasn't it? Like was <laughs> yeah, I had a ride. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and I saw this mug at a meeting one time, and it was a quote that is attributed to Bill W. And and I can't remember the beginning of it, but it, it was, such and such got us sober, tolerance keeps us sober. I think it was humility got us sober, tolerance keeps us sober, or something like that. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? What does tolerance mean? And, and it's, you know, it, it's funny when those of us with drug problems sit around and we have to, like, make a case to be forgiving of other people around us. Right. <laughs> you know, we're like most of our life where people having to find a way to tolerate us and our behavior right. that we get around. And uh, so I, I always laugh when I hear that word tolerate. And I think about um, that quote attributed to Bill W. But look at, you know, the statistics of, um, of Suboxone or, or, or buprenorphine are, they're almost, um, they're almost unbelievable. I mean, we're, we're talking, depending on what study you read and if you kind of gather it all in, people stay alive at a rate of between like 70 and 90% when they're regular taking buprenorphine or suboxone. And it, uh, look, just, just because I know my mom or my aunt might be listening, uh, yeah. uh, uh, buprenorphine is uh, suboxone. And it is a daily medication that is taken that, and look, if I misspeak, Keenan, please correct me, that uh, has a two-pronged effect. Uh, it prevents the person from going into withdrawals. And then it also, if a person were on uh, Suboxone and they used an opiate, they would not feel the euphoric effect of the drug. Yeah, and... and there's so many different analogies to use, and for some reason, a new one just popped into my head. So I don't know how well this is going to work, but you know, when I take an opioid like heroin or fentanyl or or Lortab or whatever, um, imagine one of those outdoor kiddie pools, and that substance fills up that kiddie pool or a receptor in our brain. And when that happens, we get a sensation that is associated with those substances. Um, mostly connected to dopamine and and um, and a brain chemical called GABA and endorphins, which is um, kind of handles pain relief stuff. So buprenorphine is what they call a partial um, agonist, which means, you know, your swimming pool is there and you take buprenorphine and, I, you know, it fills the pool up, but when I get in, the water is not as 
pleasurable. So the sensation is lessened a little bit with buprenorphine. Gotcha. But if, if I tried to pour a bunch of heroin in that pool, it's already filled with buprenorphine. So the heroin can't get in there. So buprenorphine actually blocks our receptors. It's a really powerful binder to these receptors that prevents other opioids from getting in there. The, the other two-prong that you're talking about is when they put naloxone with buprenorphine, and that's what they call suboxone. And the only thing that does is it, it, it prevents us from breaking down suboxone and injecting it. And so buprenorphine is actually the medication that is doing the recovery-based work or the process um, chemically in the brain to support recovery. Naloxone is just there so that it's harder to break down and inject. Gotcha. Gotcha. So is the goal of having the man or woman on Suboxone to give them enough abstinence that they may then engage in sufficient behaviors to see a net benefit from being sober? Uh, I, I think that is one benefit of it. Um, the number one overarching benefit of it is when people are regularly taking it, they die at a, they die at a much lower rate, and their other opioid use decreases at a very significant rate. You know, it, it's, it's strange to say this, but if you and I stood on the streets of Jackson and handed out Suboxone, the overdose rate would decrease in Jackson if we just handed it out um, because of the chemical structure of what it does. It, you know, if I'm taking Suboxone, it's going to block a significant amount of other opioids that I may be taking, and I'm getting not sick from, uh, I, I, let me rephrase that, it's, you know, buprenorphine, once I'm taking it, prevents me, it's like I don't have to go through withdrawal. And so my seeking behavior to use other opioids potentially is decreased as well. Now, it's, it's you know, I, I, I do think in terms of people actively seeking treatment or therapy or help, it's, a, it's an absolutely necessary component to that, too, or it can be a necessary component to that. But the medication seems to have certain benefits whether or not that person is in treatment. They've done studies, and you know, I, I am, you know, I love treatment. I love treatment, but they've done studies, and when you add other services on top of buprenorphine use or Suboxone, you don't necessarily see an increase in the prevention of overdose um, and stuff like that. Now, you may see life satisfaction increase, but if, if my whole goal is to keep people alive, the medication does that pretty much no matter what else I'm doing. You know, it's interesting to me, I don't know exactly how noteworthy this is, but, you know, the motivations for what lead us to become drug addicts can oftentimes be, be varied and can be com of completely different sources. And then when they're, they're bundled together, you know, they have the net result of driving us towards that escapism that is drug use. And equally is varied are the things that we can do in our lives to help promote recovery. You know, just like you were saying, there's no absolute, but there are those collections of behaviors that help us and increase the likelihood that we can get sober and stay sober. 
for example, having a meaningful recovery life, going to meetings, having a sponsor, read your big book, uh, medication, taking Suboxone, being, you know, you know, being regular and faithful about our administration of it. And perhaps the use of Suboxone can give the, that person an opportunity to add a couple more of those layers of behaviors that will allow them eventually to come off of Suboxone. Yeah, and, and or is it or is it intended people, to be a lifetime thing? I, I think it, I think if if I have the if I have the ability to solely take away my judgment of what I think it means for someone to be on Suboxone, if somebody is doing well and they've been on buprenorphine Suboxone for a year, two, three, four, five, and they're doing well and they're functioning, and they're in recovery, whatever that means to them, and why would I want to take them off that medication for any other reason other than, hey, I just don't think you should be taking it? Well, that's a good point. You know? That's a good point. And now, if a, if a person, they themselves want to stop taking it, okay. You know, some people will come in, get on it, really engage in treatment and be like, look, by the time I leave, I want hospice. And it's like, man, it hasn't even been two months. You know, give yourself time. Build up a routine. I, I, I like to tell people, you really should wait a year before you even talk. I mean, talk about it for sure, but wait a year before you, you decide that you're going to get off this. Because all the arguments to get off of it that I hear in my recovery world are morality judgment you know and it's like shoot if this person's alive that's when people are just um they're just dying at a rate particularly with fentanyl that i haven't seen and, and one of the things i know and, and you know this too because um you know what we do in society with drugs is people that are older always look back and be like man it wasn't like that when i was young or this wasn't like this or this, but you know, when I, I don't even, when I was 23, it was in the 2000s, people would certainly die from addiction, but in my world, it was people who had been using chronically for a long time. Nowadays, with fentanyl, we have people dying uh, at it's just a rate that is so heartbreaking that they never even get a chance to, you know, they just never get a chance. Yeah, it's certainly, it is alarming. Uh, you know, you can, uh, you can do a little bit and be fine and do a little bit and be dead. Yeah. And you don't you know, you and I could buy the same from the same person at the same time. We each get a, a, a little bindle or whatever we use and I overdose and you don't because fentanyl is so small that, you know, I may get, three grains of it in my half a gram heroin and you may only get one or two in yours. Um, so it's, yeah, it's anything to keep people alive is sort of my thing now. Um, but I also believe heavily in treatment. And, and so if you are, you know, in treatment with us and you're a candidate, we're going to utilize buprenorphine. We're going to push for it. And, um, it, you know, if people that don't want it, we can't make people do it, of course. But because 
the outcomes of it are so good in terms of, of lowered um, overdose rate. What are some other things that you have seen people do uh, that that have been successful? Like I, I won't. I, I guess I'm kind of speaking to maybe the newer person in recovery now, but I'm just trying to help them think of ideas or reinforce the things they may already know that are those indicators of success. What do the successful people do uh, when they come to or leave the pines? Or Katie Hill? Yeah, man. I have... What's hard about that is I've seen people, you know, that, that build a recovery life around them they dive into whatever program they dive into. They talk about it. They, they continue to attend treatment. They continue to attend therapy. They do the deal, and they relapse. And I've seen people that don't do any of that, and next thing you know, it's four years later, and they're still in recovery. Uh, you're still, you know, they're still doing well, whatever. And, and so I've, I have found that people that are just, they try not to keep things hidden from the people around them that care about them. That, I think, is a predominant factor in recovery, is that I have people that I've talked to that, that quite literally know everything that's going on in my life. Because we're talking about uh, a condition, we're talking about a disease, we're talking about an illness, there's an author that I really like, and she writes about addiction as a learning disorder, which I just find fascinating. You know, we're talking about this, this thing that encapsulates our cognition, our emotions, our identity, our memory, you know, pretty much how we see the world and how we see ourselves in it. And as a result, there's going to be blind spots for me because I am trying to change my life. And so... If I can just have people around me, healthy people that care about me, that I trust, or I'm maybe trying to learn to trust, that really know what's going on. You know, I, so many times we talk to someone and they struggled and they come back and it's like, man, you were involved in everything. And they say, yeah, but I was doing X, Y, Z, you know. And it's like, oh, if we only would have known, you know, potentially we could have helped avoid this. Yeah, and we need those people in our lives that can point that out. Uh, I remember one time I went to a meeting and I saw somebody that I hadn't seen in a long time. And, I mean, we had this, you know, unhealthy, uh, we were doing unhealthy things. And I just had this bad taste in my mouth. And I called a friend of mine and I was like, I saw this person and I had a bad taste in my mouth. And he said, well, you know, think about who those people are out there that when you go to a meeting, they think, God, you know, there he is again, you know, that you leave a bad taste in their mouth. And I thought, you know, this is exactly why we talk to people in recovery. It's so that they can point out things that we just don't see. Not that we can't see, but either we're blinded by our own emotional reactions or, you know, we're just not having an objective view of the situation and yeah, I, I think there's I think there's a lot of magic to what you're talking about about being willing to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, but I also think that you know changing our routine, trying to change who we socialize with, and 
And I do think meetings can be powerful. Aside from anything else, I think they can be powerful because I'm going to this place where I'm pretty certain I'm not going to get drunk or high for an hour. And I'm going to listen to people talk about how they have not or are not getting high or getting drunk. And, and, and since we've been through so many similar things, I might be able to relate to them. And so, you know, at the very least, what meetings can provide for us is a really strong building blocks for a social network or a social connection that can, that is, I mean, you talk about dopamine and reward and belonging, you know, that it has the potential to really, to really fill that space that um, drugs and alcohol were potentially filling. Well, speaking of dopamine and, uh, you know, those happy feelings. So I might be the most excited to hear you talk about this because I really took to it when I heard you speak the last time. Walk us through that uh, spiel you had about the parasympathetic nervous system and how good babies are relaxing and that sort of thing. Yeah, so there's, well, there's this researcher, his name is Kube. I can't remember his first name. Actually, Richard Kube, I, I can't remember, but How do you he spell researched uh, K-O-O-B. And he researches what he calls hedonic states or anti-hedonic states, you know, essentially pleasure states, reward states, and anti or no reward states. And, you know, people that struggle with addiction are, we are perfect test studies for people that are studying reward. And, you know, one of the things he says is when people with this, when we use for people like me or other people that have substance use problems, when we use, we get a real dramatic spike in dopamine. And, and that dopamine spike he calls um, incentive salience. And, and it's essentially, you know, what was, that, what was that reward. second word? Incentive? Salience. Salience? Yep. Okay. Salience. S-A-L-I-E-N-C-E. And, and we're essentially getting more reward than we expected. We're getting more than we expected. And that spike hits, we get a rush of dopamine, and then that our dopamine levels drop because our brain wants to balance out. And so the first step that he talks about in these pleasure states is this spike in reward, this incentive salience. And then we come down. And when we come down, we have low dopamine and, and whatever else is low in our brain because of this spike that we've experienced. And at this point, we, our brain enters a, uh, a sympathetic nervous system response, which is essentially fight or flight. And so, you know, the, the, it, it enters a state that is similar to fight or flight, and we become obsessed and seeking, and, and we are driven to thus seek out, um, you know, substances again to get another spike. And so it becomes this sort of cycle of we use, get a rapid spike, we drop, uh, our, our brain kind of enters a state similar to fight or flight, and then we are seeking to use with the power of the very gear in our brain that reinforces survival. And so, and, and those of us who have experienced drug use the way that we have, we can relate to 
you know, that drive to get high, that drive to use, that drive to get to whatever release we're, we're getting is so powerful that, you know, most people with drug problems have used literally when they didn't want to, or when they were actively trying not to. And, and that's that drive for survival that is so innate. And, and this coup research, I'm fascinated by it because it, it spells it out and it makes sense to me that it's that, you know, when we talk about cravings and um, what is that famous, there's so many famous lines in the big book that talk about the uh, sense of ease and comfort, the, yes, the obsession yes. and the craving of the abnormal, you know, drinker um, that that is, that is driven by this fight or flight condition, this, this sympathetic nervous system. Um, but we have an alternating nervous system as well called the parasympathetic nervous system. And, and this is where, yeah, like a happy baby is laying on their back playing with their two toes and cooing. They're relaxing, they're resting. Um, you know, think about um, stress relief when we think about the parasympathetic nervous system. You know, if, if fight or flight is stress, um, parasympathetic or rest and relaxation is the relief from that. And over in that parasympathetic side is where we heal, it's where we grow, um, and 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 what happens with addiction is our drug use tends to promote feelings that the parasympathetic nervous system naturally we want to produce and. So what happens is when we're sober, we're stressed, and we're in fight or flight, and when we're high, we get a sense of the feelings we get from the parasympathetic nervous system. And so, you know, if somebody decides to stop using or they get help stopping using, what happens is it's their stress level shoots through the roof, and they have no skills or very, very few skills. Let me rephrase that. Very few known or practiced skills on how to promote rest and relaxation without their substances. They cannot find relief without their substances. Do you think that, so I, I pondered a lot about this and, and when I, when I heard you give this little, this part of the lecture, you know, I was really trying to con really trying to focus in my mind on what I could do like any good drug addict. What can I do to get more of that? Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. What can I do? What practices can I put in place to help grow this uh, relax like a baby? You know, where their their belly fills up yeah. and it drops down, and they're just life is good, and they look like they're on Xanax. You know, just as yeah. back and not a care yeah. in the world. What are the things that, as a practitioner in the treatment world, what do you tell people helps with that? So uh, they're, they're, you know, eventually people are going to have to find and refine and develop their own methods to do this. But in general, trying to uh, eat healthy, stay hydrated, talk about emotions, try and slow down. You know, I, I tell people... And, and when you were young and you did sports, say high school or whatever, a lot of people did sports at that time, um, at least in this country. And I tell people, do your old stretching routine every morning when you wake up and every night before you go to bed. 
You know, there's a lot of, I mean, we could work out, we could run, we could bike, but it doesn't have to be that stuff. It can develop into that if that's sort of the direction people take it. But at its core, to build a healthy rest and relaxation and stress response, because stress response is good, it's healthy, we need it, to build a healthy balance between those two things, we've got to find a way to rest and relax and um, and heal and grow and stuff like that. And so it's really simple stuff like, you know, sitting down and just trying to breathe deep for five minutes, trying to clear your mind, you know. I, I, I hesitate to use the word meditation because there's so many other things, so many other connotations when we talk about meditation, but breathing exercises. No, that was exactly um, the really first thing I thought stuff. of was I need to do more, you know, that yeah. mindfulness meditation. You know, I think they make an app for that. And Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I bought that app at one point and I probably did it about three times. <laughs> right. You know, I talk about I talk about this stuff and like, you know, putting these things in practice, um, you know, for some reason, uh, is something that's challenging for me. Now, I do have a, a life where I do find those things at times. And I have a pretty, you know, a, a, a pretty high-impact life. But I have a five-year-old girl that does a lot of activities, and, and, and her mom certainly does most of the work with that. But we're about to uh, start soccer, and I'm going to be a coach and help with her soccer. And, you know, those are the things that, that I – that helped me feel grounded and I find relaxation in as well. Yeah, doing those. Yeah. There, there is certainly some magic to doing that, which we think we should is either a father or a person. And then, yep. uh, you know, wrenching from that, uh, self-esteem. Yeah. 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 Self-worth, which is absolutely something that is, such a common theme with people with addiction. Well, really, in in my mind, so I, I've told this this story uh, recently. When I first got sober, um, and I was living in an Oxford house, and I remember how good I felt about myself when I got a checking account, and I remember how yeah. good I felt about myself when I got a driver's license, and. You know, that, that was real-life, tangible proof that I was doing right. And it, it I mean, is it, you know, simple as yeah, it sounds. You know, I mean, yeah. that driver's license and checking account, I have drawn on even today. You know, look, look at what happens if you just stay sober. Look at what happens if you yeah. just put one foot in front of the other. Look at what happens if you just stick to it. And yeah, we, we, we certainly we have to get into the practice of not believing our own thoughts, you know, selectively maybe, but not believing the entirety of all of our thoughts. You know, because we'll just doom ourselves into inaction. Oh, look, you know, I, 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 I say this all the time. I say it all the time about how we have to learn in recovery how to be, how to objectively assess our victories, you know, because it's real easy to get caught up in what AA preaches, not that I'm knocking it, about this powerlessness, and, you know, you get, you know, you would almost think that they're trying to tell you, you don't have any control over anything, and 
I believe that to be baloney because there's a great deal of things over which I exercise an immense amount of control and power. Yeah. Uh, I can yeah. get up and go to work. I can get up and do the things I'm supposed to do. I can pay my energy bill on time. I can, you know, do healthy things. And it is only over the use and that obsession that I think the, the focus of the powerlessness should be. And, you know, by and large, I think that I've noticed in my own life how I will have uh, a particular difficulty arise and I somehow internalize that if I'm fearful at all, if I'm scared a little bit, if I'm worried about this particular difficulty, that that somehow means that I'm not able to overcome it or that when I overcome things, it's okay to have felt fearful and anxious and upset and all those things and still get over that obstacle. And that's a victory. You know, I don't have yep. to have a resounding victory to have a victory. Yep, that's, 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 uh, that's well said. Yeah. Well, hey, Keenan, look, man, I try to keep these around 45 to 50 minutes. And we, we've now hit the 50-minute mark. I don't want to run you off because I think you're the most interesting person. And if you want to talk about something else, I'll certainly uh, modify my time limit rule. But if not... Well, I, you know, one thing, I, one of the questions that I don't think I might have answered and maybe not as directly as I wanted was uh, with with uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, and the particularly the twelve step recovery community. Oh, let's hear it. You know, there's, there, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, and I don't want to speak. My experience is there's a tremendous amount of uh, blowback to people being on suboxone and attending and engaging in AA or NA or CA or you know in twelve step programs. Um, this is not a rule, but I tend to see it more often than I like, or I tend to hear about it more often than I like. And, you know, there are people out there that have a good grasp of this, that are in recovery. There are people that are actively taking it and are in solid recovery. And, you know, what I try and tell people is, um, you know, in general, it is not the general population's business of what medication I'm taking. You know, I, I don't go somewhere and say, hey, I'm, 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 I regularly take, you know, I, I take Wellbutrin daily or I take this daily or Suboxone. Uh, in the recovery world, you know, we try and tell people, find someone that you know you can trust. You know, if you're going to get a sponsor, find a sponsor that you can talk to about this stuff um, because they're out there. And, and I think, you know, thinking that they're all against it is just as much of an error as, um that's just uh, that's a big error as well. There are people who are connected with the twelve step communities that that work with folks that are on Suboxone as they should, and and so well, you know, um, yeah, but as time, more yeah. and more people like you that can explain the necessity and the reasoning behind the use of Suboxone, the more and more and the more loudly that story is told, I think that we can kind of write this somewhat perplexing idea that it's a moral failure to be on Suboxone. Because look, yeah, you know, and, and, I've done plenty yeah. of garbage things in my life to get drugs. The idea that I should cast judgment on somebody for taking Suboxone is pretty laughable. And I think the same can be said for the most of the people that are judging those fellas or girls. Well, and, 
and you know, in the in the twelve step world, you know, you know, I don't profess to be an expert on everything written about twelve steps by any means. You know, but if you look at kind of the, you know, some of the things that I think about when I think about Suboxone and recovery in AA is, you know, the whole idea of I think it's in one of the forewords or or in the early part of the book where they're talking about of all the people that have engaged in this program, this many people have stayed sober, this many people have relapsed and come back, and this many people show that their lives is their lives get better even if they're unable to maybe put together the abstinence time that they want is how I interpret it. And I think about that. You know, our whole goal, well, what I interpret the 12-step world to be, the whole goal is to help people recover. And and when people die, they can't recover. Amen. I heard and, that. and so, you know, um, that's, that's one thing I, I really, you know, there are people out there that will benefit from many parts of the 12-step program who happen to be on Suboxone, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I just really want people to hear that. The other thing is, um, you introduced me as the director of the Pines of Katie Hill, and I'm, I'm, I am uh, less associated with the Pines and Katie Hill as I have been historically. So I am the um, clinical director for Community Counseling Services, which is a regional mental health center in our region, and the Pines and Katie Hill is a part of that. And so... Um, you know, they, the alcohol and drug director for, for Pines of Katie Hill now is Whitney Koss. I'm sure you remember uh, um, her. And so many of the staff are still there. But my connection with them, I'm still connected with them and, and still go in and do a group on occasion. Um, but, but I'm less involved in the day-to-day as I used to be over there. Well, I'm sorry I made, I made that mistake. I apologize, but I'm glad you corrected nope, me. Nah, no worries. And look, you and John Kahn are the only two people I remember. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Keenan, look, man, thank you on behalf of the recovery community. Thank you. Me personally, thank you. You you are you are a value and a blessing to the recovery community. Well, I, I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, I still at my core, I still love to talk about drugs. It just ends up being about recovery now. Yeah. Um, but I, I appreciate you letting me talk, and, and uh, it's always great to hear from some folks that are doing well. It's really cool to hear and see. So. Thanks, Keenan. All right, man. I'll see you soon. All righty. Mm-hmm. Take care.